From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. You might be familiar with the recent National Geographic documentary series, Alaska State Troopers. The show followed several troopers from different areas of the state as they made their daily rounds. Two of the troopers featured on the show were Sergeant Scott Johnson and Gabe Rich. Both men worked out of the Alaska State Troopers Fairbanks Rural Service Unit. A camera crew was not with the men on the fateful day of May 1st, 2014. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. The Alaska State Troopers play a prominent role in many of my podcasts, and they are also present in my books. Alaska is mostly wilderness, and as I mentioned at the beginning of each of my podcast episodes, my husband and I live in the middle of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge. The Alaska State Troopers stop by our lodge in their boat two or three times a year when they make their rounds to the numerous bays on the island. They check our licenses and those of our fishermen or hunters, but their main reason for stopping to talk to us is to get a feel for what's happening in our neighborhood. Has anyone caused us problems, or have we noticed anyone doing something unusual or illegal? The troopers can't be everywhere all the time in this vast wilderness, so they depend on locals they trust. We know most of the troopers who patrol the island. They are good people and we like and respect them. Other than federal officers, the Alaska State Troopers are the most geographically extended peace officers in the country, and they have little, if any, backup. The state of Alaska is one-fifth the area of the entire lower 48, and only 1,300 troopers patrol this area. Cities and smaller towns have local police officers, but they only patrol within the city limits. Those 1,300 troopers are responsible for most of the rest of the state. Many native villages are too small to have a trooper post, so they hire a village public safety officer, or a VPSO. The Alaska State Troopers manage the VPSO program, and VPSOs are state-trained peace officers hired to carry out basic police tasks in the villages. The VPSO maintains close contact with the troopers, and if a situation escalates, he or she will call the nearest trooper post and request assistance. Troopers then fly to the village and take command of the situation. When the troopers arrive in the remote village, they are uncertain of what to expect, and they know backup is at least one and possibly several hours away from them. The Alaska State Troopers have difficult jobs, and as this story will show, the job of a trooper can be extremely dangerous. 
Rural Alaska has the worst crime statistics in the country, and Alaska Native communities experience the highest rates of family violence, suicide, and alcohol abuse of any towns in the U.S. The domestic violence rate in these villages is 10 times the national average. Physical assault on women peaks at 12 times the national average, and rape in Alaska occurs at three times the national average, the highest rate in the nation. In other words, there's a lot of crime and no real law enforcement in many small Alaska villages. Tanana, Alaska is an Athabascan village sitting at the confluence of the Tanana and Yukon Rivers in the interior of Alaska, 130 miles west of Fairbanks. The town has a rich history and was a trading settlement for the Koyukon and Tanana Athabascans long before European contact. No roads lead into the village. Boat travel is possible in the summer when the rivers thaw, but most transportation into or out of Tanana is by small airplane. Tanana has only 254 residents, but it has modern facilities, including a school, a water treatment plant, and a health center. Trooper Scott Johnson and Gabe Rich were well-known and liked by most of the residents of Tanana. When they were called to the village on May 1, 2014, to settle a dispute and arrest a man who had been making threats, I'm sure neither officer expected the trip to the village to be anything other than routine. According to bystanders, the men joked and laughed as they climbed out of the small airplane after it landed on the dirt runway in the village. The events precipitating the troopers' visit to the village began on the evening of Wednesday, April 30, 2014, when 58-year-old Arvin Kangas confronted a mother and daughter over the sale of a couch. Arvin sold the pair a couch for $150, but the women still had not paid Arvin. Arvin became enraged over the matter, and the mother feared Arvin would try to break into her daughter's house and remove the couch. The mother called VPSO Mark Hagelin to report the matter. And when Hagelin approached Arvin to discuss the situation, Arvin threatened him with a shotgun. Hagelin retreated and called Alaska State Troopers Fairbanks Rural Service Unit to request trooper support in the village. The following afternoon at 2 p.m., pilot David Keel landed a Cessna caravan on the dirt and gravel airstrip near Tanana, and Sergeant Scott Johnson and Trooper Gabe Rich exited the plane alongside Keel. The three men joked and laughed as they crossed the runway to meet VPSO Heglin. At Heglin's office, the troopers filled out the necessary paperwork and then decided Keel should stay at the VPSO office while Heglin and the troopers drove to the Kangos' home to arrest Arvin. Heglin did not have enough room in his truck for all three men, and since Keel wasn't a trooper, he stayed behind at the office. The troopers and Heglin approached and talked to Arvin Kangas outside his home, but Arvin began to argue with the men, questioning their authority in the village. Arvin then retreated to his house, and the troopers and Heglin followed him. 
When Arvin still refused to surrender, Johnson and Rich struggled with him, wrestling him to the floor as they tried to restrain him. The troopers had Arvin pinned beneath them on the floor when Arvin's 20-year-old son, Nathaniel, walked into the room and fired seven shots at the troopers with a Ruger Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle. Both men died moments after being shot. Nathaniel then pointed the gun at VPSO Hagelin. Hagelin later said he looked through a mist of red into Nathaniel's eyes, dark with hatred, and thought he was only moments from dying. He turned and fled back to the VPSO office, where Keel still waited. Hagelin raced into the VPSO office and told Keel both troopers had been shot. Keel hurried to Hagelin's truck, expecting to see the wounded troopers inside the vehicle. But when he didn't see them, he was incredulous. You left them there, he asked Hagelin. Hagelin said he was scared and thought he was about to be killed, so he ran. Hagelin and Keel called trooper dispatch to report the crime and request assistance. They then headed to the village clinic for medical supplies to treat the troopers and to procure more weapons from the physician's assistant, Everett Carroll, a retired Army veteran. When Keel, Hagelin, and Carroll approached the Kangas residence, they saw groups of people standing near the house, and Keel said he began to get nervous. He knew most of the people of Tanana were friendly, but a small fragment of the population resented white men and did not appreciate them meddling in village affairs. When Hagelin spotted Arvin and Nathaniel in the group of people, he pointed them out to Keel, and Keel jumped out of the truck and ordered everyone to get down on the ground. He then checked the people for weapons and told Hagelin to watch the bystanders while he and Carol entered the house. Inside the house, Keel found a woman later identified as Arvin's wife, Judy, standing near the bodies of Johnson and Rich. Kill ordered her to raise her arms, and he and Carol searched the rest of the house to make sure no one else was there. He then checked Johnson and Rich for signs of life, but determined they were both dead. In a fit of anger, he kicked a box, and Judy Arvin asked him why he was so mad. Kill, Hagelin, and Carol decided to restrain Nathaniel Kangas immediately instead of waiting for backup to arrive from Fairbanks. Nathaniel did not struggle when they handcuffed him, but instead kept apologizing as he was put into Hagelin's vehicle. Trooper Lieutenant Deputy Commander Brian Wasserman and his CERT unit landed at the Tanana Airstrip a few hours after the murders. CERT is the Alaska State Trooper Special Emergency Response Team, and it responds to high-risk incidents, including hostage situations, barricaded individuals, and high-risk warrant executions. CERT units are located in the urban posts of Fairbanks, Palmer, and Soldotna. Wasserman and his team felt uneasy about the situation in Tanana, 
because Arvind Kangas had not yet been apprehended, and they had been told a group of anti-government individuals lived in Tanana. At 7 p.m., Wasserman received a tip that Arvind Kangas was holed up at a house in Tanana. Wearing camouflage and tactical gear, the CERT unit surrounded the house while the villagers watched. Arvind refused to come out of the house for several hours, but finally, at 10 p.m., he peacefully exited the residence and surrendered. Nathaniel Kangas was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Troopers believe Nathaniel and his father, Arvin, planned to claim Nathaniel killed the troopers in self-defense when Johnson and Rich drew their guns on the father and son. Rich's holster was found unsnapped, and Johnson's gun was out of his holster on the floor near his body when troopers arrived to investigate the scene. What Arvin and Nathaniel Kangas did not know, though, was the two slain troopers wore audio recorders, and the recorders captured the argument between Arvin and the troopers, the fatal gunshots, and the aftermath as Arvin and Nathaniel manipulated the murder scene and destroyed marijuana plants hidden in the house. From the audio recordings, it is clear both Nathaniel and Arvin left the house after the shootings and were gone for a few minutes, while Arvin's wife Judy stayed at the crime scene. When Arvin and Nathaniel returned, the sound of the two holsters being unsnapped and the pistol slides being racked are unmistakable. The two men can also be heard talking about hiding the marijuana plants. Arvin Kangas was convicted in April 2015 of two counts of evidence tampering for manipulating the weapons to make it look as if the troopers had drawn their guns. The judge sentenced him to only eight years in prison. Arvin should have been held responsible, at least in part, for the murders of Gabe Rich and Scott Johnson. Not only did he commit the original crime that brought the troopers to Tannen in the first place, but the hatred he and his wife instilled in their son caused Nathaniel to despise white men and fear their authority. Friends and family said Arvin, Judy, and Nathaniel Kangas were adamant about Alaska Native rights and wanted to see Alaska's first people reclaim their traditional lands with no intervention from whites. A member of the Tannenal Council told authorities Nathaniel was brainwashed with radicalism. He went on to add, though, that Arvin was trying to get help for Nathaniel, who was suffering from mental health issues. The murder trial for Nathaniel Kangas began on May 9, 2016, in Fairbanks. In addition to the victims' families, Alaska state troopers, as well as police from other agencies, crowded the courtroom. Scott Johnson, 45, had been a trooper since 1993. He left behind a wife and three daughters. Gabe Rich, 26, joined the troopers in 2011. He is survived by his fiancée and two sons. During opening statements, prosecutors said Nathaniel ambushed and slaughtered Johnson and Rich. 
The defense attorney did not deny Nathaniel shot and killed the troopers, but said it was not his intention to kill the men. He insisted Nathaniel's actions were reactionary. On the first day of the trial, VPSO Mark Hagelin testified he saw Nathaniel Kangas shoot and kill the two troopers. He said he could see hatred in the young man's eyes when he pulled the trigger. Since there was no question Nathaniel shot the troopers, the central issue in the case became whether his actions had been premeditated. On day two of testimony, Trooper Investigator Ramon Dunford said he examined the rifle used in these killings, and he noticed the rounds in the gun's magazine were loaded in a specific way. They were arranged with a hard-tip bullet, followed by a soft-tip bullet, followed by another hard-tip bullet. The pattern repeated throughout the magazine. Dunford testified that one of these bullets is designed to penetrate, while the other is designed to mushroom. These rounds were loaded to do the maximum amount of damage. They were loaded to kill. Dunford supported his point by showing the jury a hole in the bulletproof vest worn by one of the murdered troopers. The jury then listened to the audio from the recorders worn by Trooper Rich and Sergeant Johnson. The troopers could be heard talking politely and professionally to an uncooperative Arvin Kangas. Arvin could be heard questioning the troopers' authority. The prosecution showed a video footage taken by one of the villagers of Arvin arguing with the troopers. Arvin was combative and hostile and told the troopers they were crazy neo-colonists who were only there to help white people and take his money. The argument moved to Arvin's porch, where he can be heard bellowing and cursing the troopers. Arvin's wife, Judy, soon joined him and also began yelling at the troopers. Arvin then declared he was going inside, and the troopers and Heglin followed him. Once they were inside, a struggle can be heard on the audio recording, followed by seven loud shots, and then shouts and screams by Arvin, Judy, and Nathaniel. Next, Arvin and Nathaniel can be heard leaving the house and then returning several minutes later. The next sounds are the two men manipulating the troopers' guns, followed by repeated anguished cries by Nathaniel to God the Creator. He and Arvin then discuss what to do with the marijuana plants and then leave the house again. The recording is silent for 15 minutes until Pilot Keel knocks on the door and orders Judy to raise her arms. The prosecution rested its case on Wednesday, May 11, 2016. Nathaniel Kangas said he did not wish to testify on his own behalf, and defense attorney Greg Parvin said he had no witnesses to call. In his closing argument, Parvin implored the jury to return a verdict of manslaughter because Nathaniel's actions were the result of impulse, not intent. The jury began its deliberations on Friday afternoon and then returned Monday at 8.30 a.m. to continue. At 11.30 a.m., they informed the judge they had reached a verdict. The jury found Nathaniel guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, 
in the shooting deaths of Sergeant Scott Johnson and Trooper Gabe Rich. The jury also returned a special verdict for each since Johnson and Rich were uniformed and were identifiable peace officers engaged in performing their duties at the time they were killed. Kangas was also found guilty of one count of assault for pointing his loaded rifle at VPSO Hagelin after shooting the troopers. Judge Paul Lyle sentenced Nathaniel to two 99-year terms for the murders and five years for the assault charge. The sentences are to run consecutively, adding up to a 203-year sentence with no chance of parole. I was amused to read that Kangas can file for a reduction in his sentence after he has served half of it. When handing down his ruling, Judge Lyle berated Nathaniel's parents for indoctrinating their son with distrust and hate for anyone who represented governmental authority. In June 2014, the Alaska Department of Public Safety decided not to participate in another season of National Geographic's Alaska State Troopers. According to Trooper spokeswoman Beth Ibsen, the drawback to participating in such a series is that the film crew sometimes presents logistical problems for the troopers, such as when they need to transport people but have limited space because of the two-person camera teams. I'm sure it's also true the camera crew gave the troopers two more people to worry about when situations got tense. Alaska State Troopers have a tough enough job to begin with, and requiring them to care for a camera crew on top of everything else they do might finally have seemed too much to ask. Thank you for listening, and please check the show notes to find references for this podcast. I am an author, and I write Alaska wilderness mysteries. I've written four novels set in the wilderness of Kodiak Island. I also write a monthly newsletter about murder and mystery in Alaska. Check the show notes for more information on my novels and my newsletter. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the last frontier.